We're going to be in uh, mainly Hebrews, but we're also going to be reading a little bit out of 2 Timothy and a little bit out of even Haggai. So if you know where those places are, you can turn there real quick or you can take notes and uh, look at it later to make sure I was telling you the truth. Always check out for yourself what you are being taught. So we read some of Hebrews last week, and I've been kind of hinting around for a good while now that I really want to go through the book of Hebrews, and we started it last week, and today I'm going to go back and talk about some significant things about the Bible and show you how it's organized in a really neat way. It's almost like the Holy Spirit was involved. Seems that way. And you know I like numbers and the significance of number three and number seven and how, how I get into that sometimes. And we're going to talk about a, another number today as well. So, this book of Hebrews... There are nine letters or epistles that are addressed to Christian churches. And they would be Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Those are Paul's epistles. He wrote to those churches... And you can see how they're named after the churches that are at those places. And there's nine of them, but you can kind of group one and two together of, of Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians as far as, uh, you know, they do go together. But they are nine total books of the Bible in that group. Now... You've heard me talk about the significance of that. So in 2 Timothy, we were talking about this in Sunday school, I think it was last week, and a week before, and so it kind of brought it back up. But I want you to see uh, a parallel. But first we're going to talk about those, those nine epistles that Paul wrote. There are, okay, all right, 2 Timothy 3. 15, 16, and 17. I'm going to read them all, all three verses. And this is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we should be different if we are born again children of God. We should be different than what we used to be. And it's the scriptures that show us how we are to be better. 
It's the scriptures that enlighten us, and then the Holy Spirit convicts us, and then that faith that we have in the Son of God saves us. So Romans starts that group. Okay? Romans starts the group. It's a doctrinal book. Remember what, it, what we just read about uh, all, uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, profitable for doctrine. So your doctrinal books are Romans, Ephesians, and First and Second Thessalonians. It's the first one of those nine. It's the one in the middle and the, one on the, end, the, the two on the end. And the doctrines is the cross of Christ in Romans, the church of Christ in Ephesians, and the coming of Christ in First and Second Thessalonians. So after the doctrinal book of Romans, you have a book on reproof that's First and Second Corinthians. If you read that, they, they, they were messed up. And they were being reproved. And then Galatians is uh, correction. And then you get to Ephesians, which is the body of Christ, the church, the church of Christ. And then by the time you get to Philippians, you're, they're in need of reproof again about the body of Christ, Christ's church. And then Colossians is going back over the doctrinal issues of the church because you can read Ephesians, you read, read Colossians, and you will see a lot of the same things. But Colossians is correcting the people who had forgotten about the doctrinal book of Ephesians. And then you get to First and Second Thessalonians, which is the coming of Christ, but there's no reproof book after it, and there's no correction book, because that's the end. That ends that group. Make sense? Christ comes, and he takes us out. That's Thessalonians. Then there are four epistles that are named, there's people's names. First and second Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon. Those four are grouped together. Hebrews comes after that. And if you count Revelation as being an epistle, now John wrote Revelation. It's like a letter written to a group of people. So if you count Revelation, you, can, you have nine books from Hebrews to the end. Just like the letters that Paul wrote, those, those first nine that are doctrinal and, and uh, on reproof and correction, Hebrews starts up something over again, and you have another group of nine. So if you can, so the last nine letters are addressed to not necessarily the Christian church or individuals, but it's addressed to Jewish Christians. Hebrews starts it. Revelation ends it. But what's similar, if you compare those two books that start the groups of nine, Romans being a very doctrinal book, and uh, you're going to see moral law in Romans, a significance toward the Old Testament prophetic ministry. In Hebrews... 
you're going to see more of ritual law and Old Testament priestly ministry. They both, those groups of nine, Romans starts it, Hebrews starts the other one, Thessalonians ends the first one, and it's about the coming of Christ. What does Revelation talk about? So they both end in prophecy, one geared toward the effects of Christ coming on the church, and then the second group is the effects of Christ coming on the Jew. Now, you may say, well, Hebrews, that's addressed to the Hebrews, or the Israelites, or the Jews. It's not for us. Well, if it wasn't for us, it wouldn't be in the Bible. It's there for a reason. The shadow of the temple is all over the book of Hebrews. The temple was for the Hebrew people. But we see a lot of things in the teachings about the temple and the rituals and the, the, all of the sacrifices that were made, all the feast days, we see Jesus in all of it. it. All of that is types and pictures of Jesus who's going to come in the future, and he did. And he became that sacrificial lamb. So Hebrews is addressed to Hebrews that had made a profession that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. They had even been baptized, and they were part of the church. And right away, they are being pressured by even their very own people, the Roman government, their families, to deny Christ and go back to the glorious law of Moses and all of those things. They might have been told, look at what you are leaving. You have all of these feast days you have the law of Moses and all the history, all the prophets. You are the chosen part of the chosen nation, and you're leaving it all, and you're going to what? An upper room with a little table and broken bread and wine. You're leaving all of this for what? And so in Hebrews, we, have, we are being taught that Jesus is better. And he's better and better and better of all these things that it talks about throughout the book of Hebrews, how Jesus is better than all of that stuff that they had in the past. Now, what's the significance of the number nine? Also notice that you have, you know, with those four epistles that, is, that are addressed to individuals, that leaves five other books of the Bible in the New Testament that we haven't talked about yet, which you know those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. That's five. Five plus four equals nine. And then we have not the group of nine of the epistles of Paul. And then the other group of nine. How many books are in the New Testament? Nine plus nine plus nine, or three times 9 is 27, right? So we have 27 books in the New Testament. 9 is significant. 
little book, my little numbers book. Nine. Now that's where we're going to turn to we're turn to Haggai and in, in here in a little bit. Uh, but you don't you don't have to turn there. I'm only going to read one verse. But it's got nine things in that one verse. So, all right. So the number nine. Let me read out. This is E. W. Bullinger from way back. The number nine is a most remarkable number in many respects. It is held in great reverence by all those who study the occult sciences. So the bad things you'll see significant of, of the number nine. And in mathematical science, it possesses properties and powers which are, are found in no other number. It is the last of the digits, thus marks the end. So when you get to nine, it starts over again. So nine ends it. So think about when you get to nine, something's coming to a stop. It's ending. Notice when you get to Thessalonians, the ninth book of those group, it comes to an end. When you go over to Hebrews and go through those nine, you get to Revelation, it's an end. Pretty neat. So, the number, it's the number of finality or judgment. What about our Supreme Court? How many, how many justices are there? I think there should be nine. Well, there is right now. didn't start that way. But around 1869, it went to nine. It's been that way ever since. It's, but we could, I think it might be biblical. It might actually be God's purpose. Don't tell them that it's biblical. They'll change it tomorrow. Right, but not, and it's the it's the it's finality. Our Supreme Court is you 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 can appeal all the way up to that, but that's it. Once you get there, it's done. We see the Bible all over this nation in all kinds of things, especially in our government. The Bible is what our founding fathers looked to when they got into trouble. Benjamin Franklin would stand up and share a speech that he hadn't even written yet. Most all of his speeches were written beforehand, and he gave it to somebody else to read. But that very famous speech I did back in July, July 4th message, and I, and I talked about his speech that he did, and I went through it word for word, and I showed you all the places where he, quote, he quoted Scripture. And he wasn't even considered a saved person. But he knew, well, you know, we'll find out one day in the future if he was a true believer or not, but he knew the Bible extremely well. To where when he made a speech, because he saw, he saw everything falling apart, he gets up, he looks at Washington and said, all those things that he said in that speech, which were just Bible Scripture after Bible Scripture, over and over and over again. And that was a really good, that, I, I really liked that message that I did on that. I, I, I loved it because I went through so many places in the Word to find all the Scripture references, and I was blown away. There was things in the Bible I didn't even know was there until I went through that speech. So, numbers even have a significance. I thought that was interesting. Now, Haggai, I'm going to read this one verse. It's, uh, there's only two chapters there. 
in verse, I mean, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 says, now this is, um, all of Haggai is in, in reference to the 70 years of captivity, and he is talking about how they have been, they've gone back to the land to do, to rebuild the temple, but yet they're all consumed with their own houses, and they're not thinking about the house of God. And now he is going to uh, place some judgment on them because of that. And, and look, look here in 11. He said, And I called for a drought upon the land. I'm counting up here with my fingers. Upon the mountains, upon the corn, upon the new wine. And no, notice it says, and. If you have a King James Bible, every single one of these is and upon... All right, I've got to start over. All right, because I, I think I lost my place here. A drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon uh, that which the ground bringeth forth and upon the men and upon the cattle and upon the hand, uh, labor of the hands. Nine. And, you know, that's improper English. That's what we, we've, been, we've been taught in school that saying and, 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 over and over and over, that's a polysyndeton. That's a figure of speech. We, and so the King James Bible is the only one that preserves it. The other Bibles have become more uh, correct as far as the rules of language, or changing a word to something that might make more sense to us today. But this, when you see and going into every single thing after a comma, that means each and every one are equally important. And it slows you down to where you really think about what's here. And there are places in the King James Bible that I have read I think it was in Luke, where it has the same structure, but yet when it talks about something that has more significance, it leaves out all the ands. And it's the same list. So it's not like the King James Bible doesn't know better. It does know better. So this is, this is judgment, and it happens to be nine things. That's just another example of the significance of nine, and it being about finality, or judgment. So the writer of Hebrews, which I think is God, first word of the, of, of the book of Hebrews. It's like, who wrote Hebrews? People want to fight and argue and fuss over who wrote Hebrews. It doesn't matter because it says God. The very first word in Hebrews says God. Now all these other epistles Almost always you see Paul at the very beginning. He states his name, and you know that it was Paul who was writing it. Well, here we have a very, very important book of the Bible. It's so important that whoever actually wrote it down, whatever human wrote it down, was inspired by the Holy Ghost to not even put their name down because the focus needs to be on God, who at sundry times or uh, different times, 
and in different ways, divers' manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days, recently, when it was written, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, sometimes worlds in the Bible mean ages, but here I think it actually means physical worlds. Now, isn't there just one world? Well, over in Peter, he said uh, something about uh, the, the former world, how the world was. He's like, what is he talking about? Well, I think it was before. I think it was that world where the angels hung out on before the fall. I think angels, if you read Ezekiel, and in Isaiah and Ezekiel, you see where, where Lucifer was, got, his, got himself in trouble in merchandising and trafficking. When, when, when did all that happen? Sometime before Genesis 3, when he was in a uh, body that you could see, and he, he was doing things. And it said that he started to look at himself, and he started saying, I am going to ascend. I want to be like the Most High. And it's that I, I, I over and over again. And then he was cast out along with the third of the angels. I think that there was a world here on this earth, Eden, where the angels were in charge of all of it. And then they went through that time of being cast out. You notice how the Bible starts out with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But then there's chaos all around it. Maybe they had something to do with uh, Satan's fall and caused chaos all over the earth, and it needed to be fixed. But it's a picture of each and every one of us. We come into this world. Adam came into this world perfect, perfect union with God, and then they disobeyed, they sinned, and they fell away. And they needed to be re rebuilt. They needed, they needed something to fix the problem, to get them back with God. So there, I think that there was... There was worlds, and then like last week, we talked about how what we see right now is going to melt with a fervent heat, and we probably read a lot, quite a bit further in Hebrews, and we talked about how the, this world that we know is going to fade away, and then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, so that's a different world. Who being the brightness, that's verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, who being the brightness, and every time that the word brightness is used in Scripture. It's talking about the glory of a, a very powerful figure. And every time you see it, right, I'm going I'm to give you a list of better things as well. Brightness. All right, the word brightness is found in the King James Bible 22 times. In every instance, it speaks of the glory that radiates from a supreme potentate. The use of it here is an exaltation of Jesus as the singular expression of divine glory. 
Then it says, and the express image of his person. So what does that mean? God in the flesh. Remember we did John not too long ago, a couple weeks ago. We talked about John. Uh, the Word was manifest in the flesh. The Word, the big, the big W, capital W. That's what it's talking about right here. Jesus is the express image of God. You see it all over in Scripture. You see it in Romans and uh, 9.5, Proverbs 34, or 30, verse 4. Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 9, 9 and 10. You see it in uh, John 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's just numerous places in the Bible that God is manifest in the flesh. To see Jesus is to see God. To worship Jesus is to worship God. To praise Jesus is to praise God. To know Jesus is to know God. To love Jesus is to love God. To deny Jesus is to deny God. Please don't miss Jesus. Because if you do, you miss God. And upholding all things by the word of his power. You ever heard of uh, word of faith theology? Word of faith. So you speak it or you name it, claim it, and all that. It's real popular today. This little note I have here says, In our progressive Christian era of positive speaking, and then, um, you know, that's that was an example of word of faith, we are led to believe that power comes from speaking the right words. But this text right here does not say that. It's the power, it's not the power that comes from his word. It's he's speaking a word from the power that already exists. By the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. He doesn't need the help of all those rituals and sacrifices from the Old Testament. Don't add anything to grace, is what it's saying right there. When he had by himself purged our, our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So here's the list of uh, better. All right, you just saw the first one. You're going to see 12 betters. 12, another very significant number in the Bible. So you're going to see better than the angels right here. And then in uh, 7, chapter 7, verse 7, you're going to see a better priesthood. 7.19, a better hope. 7.22, a better testament. In chapter 8, in verse 6, there's two betters, a better covenant and a better promise. Better promises. In 9.23, better sacrifices. 10.34, better substance in heaven. 11.16, better heavenly country. 11.35, better resurrection. In 11.40, that's the last verse in chapter 11, that famous faith chapter, a better thing when it's talking about your position in Christ. And then in 12.24, better blood speaking better things before the throne of God. 
For unto which of the... So he's asking a question in four, or five. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, you don't really see that. Usually you can reference these things back to the Old Testament, many of these sayings. That one you really can't find word for word, but we do know that the angels were instructed to worship him, and they did worship him. Jesus is better than the angels. Now, remember, this is written to the Hebrews. The Hebrews held angels in very high regard. Think of Gabriel and what the message, you know, the message he brought. Michael, the archangel. Uh, Daniel prayed, and the angel showed up. Remember when Daniel prayed, and 21 days later, the angel finally showed up? And the angel was, was, was uh, apologizing, basically. He said, we heard your prayer when you first prayed it. But I got held up in the heavenlies by the prince of Persia. Whoa, what's going on in the heavenlies? And you called him the prince of Persia? Isn't he a guy, you know, a king here on this earth? So the people who dispute Isaiah 14 that I was talking about earlier and Ezekiel 28, you, you read those two, two chapters in the Bible, and it's uh, Isaiah is talking to a man, but very quickly you realize he's talking to more than just a man. He's talking about Satan. He's talking to Satan. Ezekiel, the same way. It looks like he's talking to a prince here on this earth, but very quickly you realize he's actually talking to Satan himself. But you can get on YouTube and you can listen to ministers talk about how, no, no, it wasn't Satan. He was talking to a person. No. That's how we know how Satan was. I mean, you don't even know that Satan had a name Lucifer unless you have uh, King James Bible. It's not in any new version. It's the only place that you'll know that. Um, remember that angels were very special to the Israel nation, and that Jesus being better than the angels shows that he is just one of those evidences that he is the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. Seven, and of the angels who he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. God even calls Jesus God. So we need to understand the significance of Hebrews because we, just like the nation of Israel, the people who were, this was written to, 
was Jews that were being pressured to deny Christ and to go back to the old way. You've heard, if you, you, you know, some of you haven't heard the messages from the weeks gone by, but how are we any different than the nation of Israel? When we hear the gospel, we believe on it, or we say we do, but yet then we turn and start going after these Jewish things, and we start to want to obey the law of God like they were were being pressured to go back to. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking a whole lot about, we've been going through Deuteronomy. And that is uh, that transitional books that, that book that starts to tell us that you're, you must leave the law to be able to go through the Jordan and to go into the promised land. The promises of God for the Hebrew nation to go into the promised land we need to remember that when we read the Old Testament and we see the law of Moses, it needs to point us in a certain direction. That's what it's supposed to do. Moses could not go into the promised land. He represented the law. But he did a wonderful job of getting everybody turned and in the right direction and got right up to the Jordan River. And he instructed them how everything was to happen, but he could not take them. Joshua comes on the scene and Joshua takes them through the river and into the promised land. Same thing for us today. All of the law of Moses and the prophets, they're pointing us to our promised land, which is that day that we are truly born again. The only way we get to that is our Joshua needs to show up, which is Jesus. And we get turned in the right direction, we get pointed to Jesus, we go to Jesus, and He takes us through the Jordan and into the Promised Land. Now we've learned on Wednesdays that we have three different time, times in history that we have to, and it's talked about in the Bible, that we have to rightly divide. You have everything that pertains to the law of Moses, then you have what we're living in right now, which is the dispensation of grace. And then we have a future kingdom that we're looking forward to. The Sermon on the Mount is very kingdom-oriented. You read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you will say, how could anybody measure up? It's kingdom principles. If you try to add kingdom principles to grace, you're going to struggle. If you try to bring the law of Moses out of the past and try to put it in with grace, you will struggle. The law of Moses is like our past that guides our, our, our decisions today. What is your decision today? Is your decision for Jesus? And why would you make a decision for Jesus? Because of all of the law of Moses and the prophets who've told you all about him, and has guided you to a decision for today. And the decision for today is so important because it will determine your destiny for that future that we're waiting on. So let's choose Jesus. Let's understand that He is better than all of those other things that the glorious nation of Israel had. Jesus is so much better.
When you hear the gospel, sometimes people hear it and they become true believers. But then there are times when people hear it, they know that's the best way, and they just become part of the club. They show up to church. They may even go through some things like baptism and taking the Lord's Supper. But have they truly been baptized into the Holy Spirit? Have they been baptized into Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit? Have you had a true salvation experience? And then there's those who just flat out reject it. But I see those three positions in people today. People who have had a real experience, those who are doing the right things, they haven't really had a born-again experience yet, but they're just doing all the right things, and they're living a better life, but they don't really, truly have all their faith in Jesus alone. And they're trying to do other things to convince themselves and everybody else that they're for real. And then there's those who just flat out reject it. But it's those ones in the middle that are really kind of lukewarm. And God, God sees your heart. He knows the real you. You can't trick Him. You might be able to trick others, but you can't trick Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help each and every one of us to see where we are, how each one of us, where we really are. Father, are we totally convinced that you have made a way for each one of us through the shed blood of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be a people who only look at what Jesus has done and all of our confidence is in him alone and not on any good works that we've done because we've all done good works. But Father, we wouldn't rely on any of those filthy rags as our own righteousness that we would not be trying to live up to kingdom principles that are for the future but father that we would just look at jesus that we would recognize that he's better than all those other things and our only hope of true salvation is in him alone Father, I pray that the, your word has enlightened our souls. Father, I pray that your spirit has convicted our souls. But Father, I pray that each and every one of us would have a faith in Jesus Christ that will save our souls. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.